0: Good morning, River City. Yes, thank you. I have the privilege to to preach uh, Psalm 50 this morning. Uh, After last week, and Jackson gave that glorious gospel presentation, uh, today we're going to kind of turn and we're going to do a little meddling. So just be aware of that. Um, This psalm lends to some self-reflection, shall we say. So just be aware of that. Again, my name is Kevin Olson. I'm a part of um, the Jornstead Olson community groups. I'm a co-leader of that group, and we meet on Monday nights. If you do not have a community group, we would love to have you. Um, There are so many good groups, it's almost hard to decide what to be a part of, but I just want to encourage you, if you're not a part of one, latch in, get involved in one. It is going to be the greatest blessing to your spiritual development. So, um, just a quick overview, worldview, Bible storyline at 30,000 feet. We're involved in this thing called the Great Commission that's going to bring the gospel to all nations. Amen? Amen? And every nation will be reached with the gospel. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. All nations will be reached with the gospel. The glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But when the gospel moves forward, sometimes there are sparks that fly And there's resistance. And I want to start today with a story from the suffering church. And I've got three reasons for doing that. The first is I want us to be aware that persecution of the church is in high gear all over the world. Um, And I want to disabuse us of the thought that it can't happen here. We have not been given any promises that we're going to be spared anything. Um, The second thing is I uh, I want to mobilize and motivate prayer for the unreached nations of the world and also for the persecuted church. We have so many great resources at our disposal. Uh, We can pray effectually that the gospel would go out and we can pray for those who are suffering because of the gospel. And the third, I want to put us in a right frame so that we can hear Psalm 50 today. So those three things leading into this story. Now, I'm going to read this. This is from persecution.org. It's a great website. Persecution.org, persecution.com. Commend those websites to you. This is from persecution.org, and this is a hard one. And, I, and this is the... PG version of this, so just be aware of that. This is so difficult. Excuse me, in the northeastern state of Manipur in India, there's been an outbreak of anti-Christian violence, killing hundreds and driving tens of thousands from their homes since May 3rd of this year. So within the last three months, this is happening. A video surfaced uh, depicting two women From the Christian kooky community, kooky is the name of the people group, so it's not the, never mind, (laughs) Christian kooky community being paraded in an unspeakably evil way and publicly assaulted allegedly in the presence of state police. The incident unfolded in the district of Tubal on May 4th, roughly two months prior to the video's appearance on some Indian social media and messaging applications. A large Indian newspaper, the Indian Express, also reported on a strong reaction from India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, on July 20th, marking his first mention of the violence since its inception nearly two months earlier. And so he's quoted as saying, I assure the countrymen that no culprit will be spared. The law with all of its might will take one step after another, Um, said Modi who's from the BJP. The BJP is the ruling party in India. It's It's a Hindu nationalist group that is in control of India. And India is an emerging global power Um, The women have uh, told the media that an unruly mob made up of men from the majority Mai Thai community, which is predominantly Hindu and who were allegedly armed with sophisticated weapons, stormed their village that day. As the mob torched homes and threatened to kill residents, the women sought refuge with the local police, only to be seized by the mob en route to the police station. In the grasp of their tormentors, the women were humiliated and then paraded and assaulted by a mob. The youngest woman in her 20s, according to the complaint, was forced to endure what cannot be mentioned here. The father and brother of one of the women were murdered as they stepped in and tried to protect them from the mob. Four police officers were present at the scene watching from their vehicle and offering no assistance or intervention. According to the Indigenous Tribal Leaders Forum, at least 114 Kuki people are confirmed dead, uh, 197 villages have been burned, more than 7,000 houses have been burned or destroyed, 359. Churches and religious buildings have been destroyed and burned, and 41,000 people remain displaced since May 3rd of this year. Just feel the weight of that. Um, the Kuki or the Kuki Zo people are related to the Mizo people who live in the neighboring state of Mizoram. If you've heard about the Mizo people, it's glorious. Over the last hundred years, over 120 years, the gospel has been preached in Mizoram, and almost all the Mizo people claim to be Christian. And they're taking the gospel to Burma, and they're taking the gospel to Manipur, and they're taking the gospel to Nagaland, and they're taking the gospel to Bangladesh, and they're having success in planting churches. Um... So this incident again shows a darker side of Christian persecution. Christian women around the world are vulnerable to these kinds of horrendous attacks. The persecution of Christian women is often hidden, uh, but often violent. Women suffer rape, forced marriage, and abuse of every form. In many places around the world, girls and women are kidnapped from villages and subjected to sickening abuse. Girls may be forced to marry their attackers, or families are blackmailed with extremely high ransoms which leave their families destitute. Now there's been calls for justice in Manipur. But what does justice look like for these women and for the men who died trying to protect them? for the 114 Kuki people who have been killed, for the property owners in the 197 villages which have been destroyed, and the homeowners of the 7,000 houses that have been burned to the ground, or the 359 congregations whose churches have been burned. What does justice look like for that? But sadly, this is small compared to what is happening in Africa. For example, in Nigeria, or the Sudan, or the Central African Republic, or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, what they have been facing for the last 10 years has been incredible. Or what about Christians in Vietnam, or China, or North Korea who have been facing persecution for many more years than that? So what does justice look like? And maybe a better question is, who will provide justice for these precious saints? So I want to pray for us, and then I want to read Psalm 50. Father, thank you so much for today. God, we have come to worship you today and you are worthy of our, of our praise and worship and adoration. God, you are a great and glorious God. And Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Manipur, Lord, who are going through really hard times right now. Father, we pray that you would comfort them by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we ask that you would shield them and protect them, that you would be a fortress for them. And Father, I pray that they would not become embittered, but God, that you would grant them that even, Lord, that they would be able to love their enemies and pray for them and care for them. Father, we ask that the gospel would continue to run and be glorified in Manipur. And Father, I wanna pray that you would help us today as we delve into Psalm 50. Lord, who is sufficient to bring these great and awesome truths out? And so God, we look to you. Father, we pray that you would grant the Lord that the spirit of God would be poured out upon us today. That God, that we would hear your word. And God, that we would be changed by it. God, we plead with you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So as I'm beginning to read, if uh, the strike team, um, if anybody needs a Bible, just raise your hand. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, just take it. It's yours. It's a gift from River City to you. Psalm 50. And um, just keep your finger here. We're going to be jumping to a few other passages in the Bible, but just keep your finger here. Because we're going to be stepping through Psalm 50. So Psalm 50 begins, the mighty one, God The Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the setting. Talk about a glorious entrance into this psalm. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is a judge, is judge. And then, Selah. (laughs) Rest. Take a deep breath. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God, not for your sacrifices. Do I rebuke you? Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked... God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. If you, you keep company with adulterers, you give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Praise God, there's hope there at the end. And this is the first psalm attributed to Asaph. So, who's Asaph? There's lots of data on him. Asaph was the son of Berechiah the Levite. Asaph together with Heman the Ezraite, the author of Psalm 88 I had the opportunity to preach that psalm here (laughs) years back, and that's a depressing psalm, but he was the author of that. And Jeduthun were the men whom God put in charge of the service of song before the ark of the Lord in Jerusalem, in the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle was set up in Jerusalem and they brought the ark back, Asaph was one of those that that, uh, David put in charge of leading the ministry of song for that. Asaph was the symbol player, percussionist. Asaph is referred to as the seer, another term for a prophet. Um, hundreds, excuse me, hundreds of years later, King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and Asaph, the seer. We read that they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshipped. The sons of Asaph are said to have prophesied under the direction of the king during David's reign and into the reign of Solomon. Twelve psalms are attributed to Asaph. Psalm 50, which is our psalm today, and then Psalm 73 to 83. So, and I grabbed all of that from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. So when we get into a psalm, we're always looking at two things. We're looking at a near-fulfillment. So the psalm was written to a group of people living in a particular time in history. But then there's also a eschatological, end times, last things fulfillment of it. So we're going to wrestle with those two things, and we're going to focus especially on the eschatological view here. So... So the immediate application of of Psalm 50 is God is calling his people, and there are people that are faithful to the covenant, and he calls them my people, the faithful, as uh, Jackson said last week, he was talking about the faithful and the unfaithful. So there's this group that are faithful, that God calls my people, and then there's this other group he calls the wicked, and he's calling them to judgment. So that's the near fulfillment written to the people of Israel at that time. The eschatological fulfillment is looking at the fulfillment of the last judgment fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is borne out by the language that the psalm uses itself. We can see even in the hint of the the language of the psalm that it's pointing to something bigger, something more Glorious. So the big thought that I want to leave with you this morning, Jesus Christ has the last word. Right? Thank you. Jesus Christ will speak the final word on everything that takes place on planet Earth. Just like we read earlier, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus. So I've got three main points. Uh, I was going to put up two fingers and say three main points. Uh, one, two, three. Uh, I got three main points. The mighty one, God the Lord speaks and summons the earth to judgment. Point two, the mighty one, God the Lord speaks to his covenant people. And three, the mighty one, God the Lord speaks to the wicked So we're gonna have those three points. So again, this psalm starts off verse one, the mighty one God, the Lord speaks. And I've got a nice, beautiful, got the next slide, next one. Yes, okay. So remedial Hebrew (laughs) or beginning Hebrew. Uh, you you read right you read right to to left, and so the Hebrew is El, Elohim, Yahweh, Devar. So you've got El and Elohim. So um, so some translations like Calvin, which I, I really like, he says the God of gods, right? El Elohim, El is singular, Elohim is the majestic plural that is always used of God in the, in the Old Testament. So El Elohim and then Yahweh, the covenant name for God. So you put all three of those together, El Elohim, Yahweh, then you have many different views of how to translate that. Like the ESV, um, in most modern translations, they just say the mighty one. God the Lord speaks or has spoken. The, the usually excellent N-E-T does a weird thing where they say L God the Lord, so they kind of transliterate and then translate all together in the same verse, which I think doesn't work. Um, the um, Holman Christian Standard Bible and the New Jerusalem Bible say Yahweh, the God of God, speaks. Calvin, the God of gods, Yahweh speaks. I'm partial to Calvin, but we'll stick with the ESV today. The mighty God, the mighty God, God the Lord, Yahweh, speaks. And when God speaks, things begin to happen. In Genesis 1, God spoke, and he spoke the worlds into existence, right? We see that... Reiterate it in Psalm 36. When God speaks, things take shape. When God speaks, the heavens and the earth tremble. When God speaks, the earth melts. When God speaks, the cedars are broken and the forests are stripped bare. Psalm 29. God speaks, in storms rage. Psalm 107. And when God speaks, his word is performed, Ezekiel 12. And when God desires to summon the nations to judgment, he will speak and it will happen. All the nations will be summoned to that final day of, of judgment. There will be no resisting that summons. There will be those that will be trying to have the rocks and mountains fall on them to keep them from being brought before the presence of God. We too, every one of us, will be a part of that great summons. And this is pointing to the final summons of Jesus. In John chapter 5, it says, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The mighty one God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth, and he says, from the rising of the sun, the east, to the place where it sets, to the west, everything, everybody is is included in that, right? So... And this summons is issued from Zion, which is the city of the great king. Uh, i got to pull out a great Spurgeon quote here. The Lord is represented not only as speaking to the earth, but as coming forth to reveal the glory of his presence to an assembled universe. The heavens and the earth, Everything. The beams of his splendor are described as shining forth upon all nations. The majesty of God is most conspicuous among his own elect, but it is not confined to them. Zion is made perfect in beauty by God's indwelling, and that beauty is seen by all observers. God's glory shines forth from Zion because his presence is there. And here's a good Edwardian, Jonathan Edwards quote: The effulgence of the glory of the triune God shines forth in judgment to all the nations. Or, the simpler version, God is so glorious that he manifests his beauty and radiance that will shatter all of the darkness of this world. He is a God of vengeance for the unrighteousness that has despoiled. His creation. And and make no mistake here. God hates that. He created the world beautiful, he created it good, and it's been despoiled by sin and wickedness and unrighteousness, and God hates that. Psalms ninety four. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evil doers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. The wicked act like God is not keeping track of what's going on, but they are sadly mistaken. They act like there's no God that will hold them accountable. Verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. Another way you can translate that, the N-A-S-B, fire devours before him. It is very tempestuous around him. The fire itself is tempestuous. So however you want to take that, uh, it's awesome. (laughs) When we see God, yeah, we will be in awe. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up all his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne because God is righteous and a God of justice. He cannot help but act according to his own nature. And when Christ returns, well, let's just read it in 2 Thessalonians. This is evidence, so this, The Thessalonians' steadfastness and faith in the midst of their persecutions and afflictions. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Verse 4, he calls to the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. And then he calls and he says, gather to me my faithful ones who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God will come, Jesus Christ will come, and he will separate, right? He will separate the sheep from the goats. He will separate the nations. He will separate the wheat from the chaff, sheep from the goats, the clean from the unclean, the faithful from among the unfaithful. And Christ will sit on his glorious throne. When the Son of Man comes, Matthew 25, 31-32, and the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. And then verse 6, and the heavens proclaim His righteousness for God Himself is judge. The creation itself Testifies to the righteousness of God. It screams out, God is righteous. Steve Lawson, I gotta do the gotta point the finger. He does this thing. Um, Looming on the horizon of eternity, there is coming a terrifying final day of judgment. This world is spinning through space on a collision course with this final day of reckoning. The book of Romans identifies it as the day of wrath. Jude calls it the judgment of the great day. The apostle Paul says that this day is fast approaching, a final judgment day in which God will hold court and all the world will stand trial before him. In this final judgment, God will open the books and present his case and every lost sinner will be judged and God will announce his just verdict and condemn every unbeliever to hell. That day is fast approaching, brothers and sisters. Revelation chapter 20, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This will be Christ's final word on all of the events that have taken place on planet Earth. It's a time when true biblical justice will take place. The sentence is, the soul that sins shall Die. The cookie women who we heard about earlier will be vindicated before this throne. The cookie men that gave their lives trying to protect them—they will be declared righteous before this throne. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But the perpetrators of wickedness, if they do not repent, will be judged. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The reality and the severity of the final judgment motivates Christians To forgive. To forgive those who have done evil against them. Because they know that they've been forgiven, right? We know that we have been forgiven. Tremendous wickedness. God has been gracious and merciful to us. So then we can forgive those who perpetrate evil even against us. And we know, because if God can save us, who can't he save? God will satisfy complete justice in judgment on those who are impenitent. But this frees us to love our enemies and to do good to those who perpetrate such wickedness against us. God does not sweep, right? He doesn't sweep Sin under the cosmic rug of the universe. All sin will be dealt with and it will be seen to be dealt with perfectly and finally. And it's going to be in two ways. Either all of God's wrath is going to be poured out on His Son in our place so that we escape that wrath, or it would be poured out on the sinner who does not trust, who does not repent and turn to Jesus Christ. There is no third way here. It's Christ having the final word of saying, I take their sins on my body, on the tree, or Christ saying, you take your sin, you take your punishment. There is no other way. So that's the first six verses. Take heart, because most of the message is the first six verses. Uh, We're going to go through the other two sets of verses here really quickly. But I just want to ask you right now at this time. You have been forgiven. Is there anyone in your life that you need to forgive? Are there enemies in your life that you can love and serve? Are there people in your network of relationships that make life difficult for you for whom you can ease their burdens that you can pray for and earnestly desire God's best for them? Are there people in your life like that? Again, God will not sweep sin under the rug. Sin will be dealt with, either on Christ or by sinners taking the wrath on their bodies. But Psalm 50, in the light of the coming judgment, is also a call to repentance. And I want to offer that to you today. The second section here, the Mighty One, God the Lord speaks to his covenant people. Psalm 50, verses seven through 15. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. The problem with God's people in this text is that they seem, right, seem to be people who are fulfilling their covenantal responsibilities and offering the proper sacrificing, but they're believing that their sacrifices, in some sense, is meeting a need in God. That their sacrifices are filling up something that is lacking in God. That their sacrifices are making them right with God. They're putting God in their debt because of the things that they are doing. And God has a word to people, to us. I mean, who doesn't fill that category? How many times have we been in that position where we say, God, I'm one of your people. God, I, 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 I read the Bible almost every day. God, I pray. God, I give. I do all of these wonderful things. God, you owe me a good life. I shouldn't be suffering in this way. I shouldn't have to go through a trial like this. Why am I experiencing this? Why am I struggling to pay my bills? God, where are you? We can get so caught up in all the things that we do that we think that by doing those things that somehow God owes us anything. And it's not just us. The people in Manipur have that same temptation. Do you see how much I've suffered for the name of Jesus? Do you see what I've endured for your great namesake? Why do I have to go through this? God, you owe me. You owe me a good life. You owe me an easier life. Now, we don't speak that, right? Nobody's foolish enough to say that out loud. But in our heart... Who hasn't experienced that? But God is the one that gave us life. He gives us breath. The air that we breathe is God's air. The water that we drink is God's water. The food that we eat is provision from God. Even the things that we can give back to him have come from his goodness and from his bounty in the first place. We offer nothing to God that he does not already own and that he has not given to us. God derives no nourishment from our sacrifices. They were never intended as meals presented to him to keep him fed or things to be done to make ourselves right with him. Even in our good works, there is much that needs repentance. God has glorious reasons for allowing us to go through the trials that we go through in this life. And it will be made clear. He doesn't call us to understand everything that he he brings us through, but what he does do is he calls us to trust him in the midst of that. So when he's saying things like, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and all of fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? This is basically saying, you're offering these things to me and I've commanded them, but don't think that I'm hungry or that I need this for nourishment that somehow I'll become weak if I don't get them. And then he he closes out this section with, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. The point of offering the sacrifices of thanksgiving is that we acknowledge our absolute dependence on Him. When we offer anything to God, we do it out of the frame of mind, this came from you, God, and you have given me the privilege of offering it back to you. I am not putting any demands on you for my obedience. God receives glory from his goodness lavished on unworthy sinners like us, and he receives it through our deliverance when he desires to deliver us. Such humility We'll see our activities for what they really are, an outward expression of one's faith in God. And we will call upon God in the day of trouble, and God will answer us, and He will deliver us, and we will glorify Him. Because of what Christ has done, we can say, what a privilege. What a privilege to even have the Scriptures. Robert and I, we worked in a country where the people, for a while there, they had like they would have one little portion of Genesis and the Gospel of Mark, and that was the that that's all that they had for Scripture. But any part of God's Word is precious and glorious. We have everything. In fact, we've got multiple copies. How many? I mean. I think I've got at least 12, 13 Bibles at home. Unspeakable riches. How often do we get into that and study it and read it and see the vision of how great and glorious our God is? Just a few quick questions as we'll move on to the third point. In what ways do you feel that God owes you anything? What demands on God do you make for your obedience? In what ways have you felt disappointed in God because of some struggle that you are enduring? Is your obedience an expression of thankfulness to God? Or is it done to put God in your debt? And then the final point, I'll rush on here because I think I'm a little bit long. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks to the wicked. The problem with the wicked in this passage, let me just read this quick. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. And if you, you keep company with adulterers, you give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving to God, thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The problem with the wicked is that they seem in some sense to claim to know God or are following some form of religion, or at least some sort of moral categories by which they can feel good about themselves and condemn others. But they hate God's discipline and instruction. They cast God's words behind him. They excuse taking things that do not belong to them in the name of justice. They actually delight in it. I've got that... This is classic. So during the the riots, during the pandemic, uh, this book by Vicki Osterwell, In Defense of Looting. She wrote this book, you know, In Defense of Looting. But it's funny, because on the back page, it says, um, so the scanning, uploading, and distribution of this book without permission is a theft of the author's intellectual property. If you would like so so she's talking about right. She's condemning, or she's saying it, it's okay. Let's uh, looting is a good thing, uh, but just don't loot her intellectual property. Okay, these are people that they have no concept that any form of sexual immorality would be considered sinful. They use their mouth to speak wicked things. They lie, and they do not honor those who should love and who they should love and cherish. And they think that God, small-case God that they worship, approves of this. I just want to highlight a few verses here. Verse 21, these things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. There's a problem when God doesn't judge immediately. Because God is gracious and merciful and He's long-suffering. And He won't always bring things to judgment immediately. And so we can become numbed to that. But they and all who live like this should be fearful. Jesus will have the final word on the things done in this life. The Hindus in Manipur who think that murdering Christians or acting wickedly towards Christian women who think that that's acceptable to their God will discover that the true and living God does not approve of these things. And they will discover that the true God, the mighty God, the God of God hates that. And they will discover that to their everlasting shame and everlasting punishment, unless they repent and trust in Christ. I recently saw the movie Sound of Freedom. Anybody seen that? What a moving experience that was. The horrendous wickedness discussed in that movie was heartbreaking. The people who are involved in trafficking children, who kidnap children and sell them into a life of unimaginable, dark, and perverted slavery, they will discover that God hates that. And they will discover that to their everlasting shame and everlasting punishment unless they repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to mention this next one here, I, I just feel so moved by this. And for the parents and doctors who are subjecting their minor children, some as young as eight, to hormone, block, hormone blockers and sex change operations who are mutilating young children based on sheer fantasy, and think that they're in some way honoring that person or honoring that child or honoring their God, they will discover that the God of God hates that. And they will discover that to their everlasting shame and everlasting punishment, unless they repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And this is true for the many other sins in our culture. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will, inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then there's a... This is parentheses. So he lays out these these horrendous sins but praise be to God God grants repentance from those things so in verse 11 he says and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God repentance is real transformation of life is real. It's available to everyone who puts their faith in Christ. I I, want to meddle a little bit here. What personal sins are you laboring to justify this morning? God does not forgive excuses. He forgives sins, named and confessed sins. For what sins is God not calling you to repentance? Do you believe that repentance is even possible? And I'm gonna just move on to the gospel here. The gospel is the good news, the good news of what Jesus has done for us in Christ Jesus. The Bible reveals that all people, all people everywhere are sinners and therefore under his righteous judgment, we are under his wrath. But although God stands over and against us in judgment because of our sin, He extends grace and mercy to, be, to us because of His great love. Christ bore our sin on the cross. He bore the penalty for our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God that we rightly deserved. He turned aside God's judgment. He canceled all of our sin. The brokenness of our lives, he restored our shattered relationships. He rebuilds the new life that restored sinners finding Christ is granted out of the sheer grace of God. It is received by faith as we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus. We confess him as Lord and bow to him joyfully. That's Carson. I just ripped it right out of Carson. So, The gospel is the good news, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So we began this message looking at some events that took place in India. We saw that there was a final day of judgment coming. We saw how God confronts his people over their heart attitudes. And we saw the danger that those who transgress God's holy law live under if they continue without repentance. And verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. God will bring about justice for every act done in his creation. God does not sweep sin under the cosmic rug of the universe. It will be dealt with and seen to be dealt with perfectly. And Jesus Christ will have the final word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word today. And Lord, all the ways that I obscured it, God, would you work through that to make it clear? Father, we come before you today. Lord, we recognize that, Lord, all of us are sinners. There's no one who is perfect. There's no one who, Lord, has lived a perfect life. Lord, we have all blown it. We've all sinned. And and Lord, we have sinned grievously. But God, we come to you in great hope because of the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us of our many sins, and God, we ask that you would lead us, Lord, into green pastures of progressive sanctification, that our lives would reflect more and more the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would help each of us God, you are so great and awesome. You are the mighty God, the one who speaks. And God, we want to listen. I ask him in Jesus' precious name. Amen.